Hey y'all, this is Deacon Jim Rohner from Forefront Church coming to you again, and I know there's been a lot of content coming from me in the past couple days, but I hope you're not sick of me just yet because I've got a really awesome interview for you. Today I'm interviewing Shar Adams about her thesis that she wrote for the Graduate Center at CUNY entitled, If It Wasn't for the Women, An Exploration of Works by Renita Weems, Will Gaffney, and Kelly Brown Douglas. And this interview is all about womanist biblical scholarship. And what is that? Well, I'm going to use her words exactly and quote to you, Womenist biblical scholarship is the hermeneutics, ethics, critique, theology, and more done with a specific lens on black women and how they are understood within and as a result of biblical text. Now, if you want to read this thesis yourself, there's a link for it in the show notes for this episode. I highly encourage you to check it out because this is an awesome conversation and we cover a wide range of topics from how the Bible has been used in the past, both the Old and New Testament, to perpetuate systems such as white supremacy, transphobia, and homophobia, and how Shar and these scholars are hoping to recontextualize and decolonize Christianity and the Bible to embrace black women. It's a great conversation, and I know I've been saying that a lot, but I'm really excited and I really mean it with this one. Shar is a journalist and she does have a stutter. And while I do always edit these episodes in the interest of content and time, you will notice this as the interview goes along, but I guarantee you it will not distract from this amazing powerful interview. So I hope you enjoy um, this great conversation with this awesome woman about the works that she has done on these awesome women as well. Thank you uh, for taking the time to have this conversation with me about this thesis, about this paper you wrote. It's a wonderful, edifying paper. If it wasn't for the women in exploration of works by Renita Weems, Will Gaffney, and Kelly Brown Douglas. And so much in there. I'm excited to get into it. But first, I wanted to kind of start at the beginning uh, with you. And I guess just this was a thesis. So you were writing this under an academic setting. So what was I mean, can you talk a little bit about not even your journey, but what ultimately led you to this study? What is the study and what kind of uh, uh, inspired you to write this thesis and on this topic? Well, I got my master's from the Graduate Center in in women's and gender studies, but um, I have um, I have my bachelor's in um, journalism. Um, I was raised Christian, and so like faith has always been like a very big, uh, big part of my life. And so after I finished undergrad in 2014, I began to write and to think more um, deeply about Black women um, and mainly the um, sexual politics of Black womanhood. And so at that time, I just um, happened to like um, be um, decolonizing my faith um, and focusing a lot um, on um, purity culture. And so I was interested in sexual violence and um, sexual politics and um, and all the ways that race impacts that. 
And so that is where my interest in Black women and um, American Christianity came from. And so as for my thesis, um, I wanted to focus on Black women's sexual politics. And for me, that meant tackling the uh, religious indoctrination that informs uh, these um, politics, right? And so that is where, and, and like, so that is how this whole idea and like my passion was born. <laughs> it's interesting to me because you, you were coming at this or there, there's sort of a, a, an analysis or a lens of a womanist perspective, which yeah. I must admit, like, I, I didn't even hear that term until really within the last year. And that was uh, only when I started reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree, there, there's a, a, a kind of a discussion of womenist interpretations and how that informs uh, the Black experience in America. And I, and I remember even texting Sarah New, and Sarah New was the one who recommended you that, that we have a conversation. I was like, what is the difference between womanist and feminist? I mean, what is the distinction between womanism and feminism, at least when it comes to this the academic sense and the topic that you have been uh, researching? Right. Um, so the um, term womanist was coined by Alice Walker in the 80s. Um, and um, it was published, um, first like published and, and um, really theorized in, in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. And she famously theorized it as saying, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Yeah. And so the main idea or point of womanism is that it prioritizes Black women in a way that feminism hasn't, right? And so it relies heavily on the lived experiences of um, Black women, right? And so because Black women are not a um, monolith, of course, womanism seeks solidarity and not hegemony, mm-hmm. right? And so um, we're like, feminism tackles ideas about gender and power more um, broadly. Womanism takes it further by looking at these systems from an intersectional lens, right? And so as womanists, we, we ask questions of what it means to be together. So like, um, so, so it's like, who is in community? What is their role? Um, who is forgotten and who has been silenced, right? And so it is different from feminism because by focusing on Black womanhood, which includes Black trans women, of course, 
by focusing on that, Mormonism cuts at the ways that white feminism can prop up white supremacy. Such an evocative um, comparison too, especially like, well, sure, like lavender is a purple, but just because you're purple doesn't mean you're lavender. And I'm, I'm glad yeah. you brought up this idea of community, not hegemony, because I, I, I am guilty as every other let's just say white person of kind of being like, sure, I'm, I'm woke, I'm educated, I'm, I'm doing what I can. And yet there still is a tendency, I'd say, for people to kind of look at a, a group who is not them, a demographic that is not them and kind of view them as monolithic, uh, monolithic, yeah. excuse me. Um, and you make a point here and in your paper of, you know, that, you know, noting that not all black women, biblical scholars are on one accord. And I'm wondering if you've seen in, your research in the stuff you've read that that is, you know, that temptation or that tendency to kind of loop people in, in together as this, as one, is that a presumption or assumption that a lot of people who seek to educate themselves is still a trap that they fall into? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that because we're all just very, imperfect right um i think that this can happen with anyone educating themselves about anything right um we tend to look at frameworks through a monolithic lens and we forget about the complexities of these like frameworks, right? And so of course, like there are basic grounding principles of like um, feminism, but that doesn't mean that everybody participates in it in one way, right? Um, I believe that human beings are inherently contradictory <laughs> and complex. And so we have to make Base for that when developing our politics. You know, your thesis, it's it's a, an academic work. I am, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to academia. I, I love taking an academic approach to analysis stuff. My, my specialty is film. If you want to talk to me about a, 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 a Marxist feminist interpretation of a 1940s film, I am all okay. about that lecture. Um, but I know that uh, when it comes to a, um, a more academic um, approach to, especially something which is so ubiquitous um, like the Bible, people may not understand that approach. And specifically when it comes to certain um, contextual engagements that you use and that these these scholars use such as like exegesis and hermeneutics and like what are those words and what are they adding to our reading uh experience of the bible so can you just for uh, i guess a lay person because even i struggle with it sometimes yeah. what are exegesis and hermeneutics and, and how do they kind of i'd say enhance you know the bible as not just a text but like as as a historical document or as an experience right so um Exegesis is a critical explanation, analysis, or interpretation of a text. So, like when you're in church and like, um, and you see a, a like pastor taking a like line and like really diving into the like 
context, the words, right? They are doing exegesis, right? And um, I love the way that Will Gaffney puts it. Um, she says that exegesis is to simply seek meaning in a text and to think critically about what um, what um, you're reading, its context and its implications. And yeah, and so I think that's a very powerful thing because anybody can do that, right? And so hermeneutics has to do more with the study of interpretation and um, the like general like um, um, principles of interpretation. And I love that um, Dr. Judy Fentress Williams, um, she points out that interpretations are so powerful because they themselves can be authoritative rather than like the text itself mm. right mm-hmm. yeah and so that's like pretty much how I would explain those like uh, terms <laughs> it's great because it, it I mean for for me I know it, it adds another level of appreciation and analysis for a text which we especially if you grew up in an evangelical background like I did you just kind of have this assumption that the bible just poof like kind of formed one yeah. day and was you know maybe god's hand was directly what wrote it or speaking through let's be honest yeah. men writing these things down and um and and it adds such like a level of, of appreciation and meaning i mean one clear example you have a, a few in your paper but just also when when you're a kid the story of turn the other cheek you know starts out as like well it just means that you know you you be nice to people and you you know you 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 show them that you're a better person and then you you really actually kind of dig into the context of that story and realize like what a what symbolically that gesture of turning the cheek and and, and giving yeah. and presenting the backhand to someone what that means in the context like wow it's kind of one of those mind blowing right. moments and it's important that this these exercises and practice happen because even you know as Weem says that you quote in in your paper the Bible is a thoroughly political document, both because of its adjudicating status in our social world and because it reflects a long history of political decisions made about interpretation, transmission, reinterpretation, and canonization. And it's just important to remind people, this did not form on its own. Many factors went into this thing that we now call the Bible. Yep. I'm curious as to why you chose to focus on these three scholars specifically, because I know, you know, doing some background that you provide and also myself, it's like, well, you know, so Gaffney is kind of a Hebrew Bible scholar, but then you have Douglas who was an Episcopal preacher. And it seems like at first, where is the middle ground? But then it also kind of seems like, well, it's because of their their different fields that this is the reason why you chose to have them as the center of this. Yeah. So um, these three scholars were actually my first introduction to womanist theology, right? Um, So basically, um, studying their work gave me a very well-rounded, holistic view of womanist theology. And so 
Um, Will Gaffney, she is a um, Hebrew Bible scholar, and she um, focuses on a classic Jewish form of interpretation called Midrash. That's M-I-D-R-A-S-H. And so she really dives into the Old Testament, um, into the Torah. And she does it by finding the Black women in it, Mm. right? And parsing out what, what it means to do that, right? And as for Ranita Weems, um, I uh, call her um, the storyteller, mm-hmm. right? Um, because like she paints a very human picture of Bible characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, she uses what's called sacred imagination. Mm-hmm. And so that's just um, a practice that means... Um, to imagine what what it would be like to be in a biblical scene using contextual knowledge and lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. And as for Kelly Brown Douglas, like she focuses on faith and contemporary experiences of blackness and like that includes sexuality and social justice Mm -hmm. and so I chose them because well like because they were who I was who I was um drawn to most but also like they're all like so different but they do the work of racial recognition through the um, Bible. Weems almost kind of sounds like for, for people who are not biblical scholars or, or, or who kind of are, are new to the whole faith or spiritual experience, sort of like a, 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 a black womanist um, approach to sort of like Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, where it's sort of like, let's, let's recontextualize these stories that we've read before, but you know, within an actual, from the point of view of the characters that lived it, instead of just like, here's our interpretation of how these right. things sort of came about. Um, and, and I love that that you get into it and that, um, you know, Gaffney gets into um, Hebrew biblical scholarship, because I know, once again, getting back to my evangelical upbringing, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we kind of approach them differently. Like the Old Testament yeah. for, you know, for me as a, as a kid was sort of like, well, that's, you know, that's fun history. And if you want, if you're going to make a movie out of the Bible, that's where the stuff comes from, because that's where all the wars are. And that's where the kings are. And that's where you have these, you know, these, these kind of stories. Um, And then we, but we kind of gloss over it because like, well, the New Testament's the important stuff. Mm -hmm. And you do a wonderful job of, of highlighting how the black experience versus the, the white experience when it comes to the, the Old Testament and the New Testament are different because in the Old Testament, we do see a lot more of these stories of, you know, where there are the roots of these systemic forms of, of oppression that, you know, powers eventually would kind of be like, here's the reason why we have to be in charge or why we are, are right or why, you know, why basically you name it as white supremacy and how it came out. And I just found that to be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, we tend to gloss over the Old Testament 
until it's time to enforce a power hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? In Ranita Ra- Weems' book, it's um, called Battered Love. Um, she explores themes of like um, violence and misogyny mm-hmm. through the prophetic metaphors of marriage and family um, that are used to describe God's um, relationship with Israel. Mm -hmm. And like, so like we see a lot of these metaphors and this imagery in the um, Old Testament overall. And uh, Christians, we often refer back to them, like to like defend power hierarchies. And I heard Will, um, Will Gaffney give a talk and she said that um, a lot of Old Testament scriptures paint a picture of sexuality based on the dominant culture which is a heterosexual and heteronormative culture and as christians we tend to um do that as well like um instead of being countercultural or subversive um american christianity often upholds cultural norms mm. And uses the Bible to support those uh, biases. That was one of the most eye-opening parts of of this thesis was exploring that idea, that notion of how Old Testament prophets and and you know poetry, um, specifically when it's supposed to be like, oh, it, it's a equivalency of you know God's relationship to Israel. We're making it, you know, we're just writing it in the language of a man's relationship with a woman because of of the connection and yet you don't realize when you're reading the prophets or song of solomon or that kind of thing like how that kind of imagery and language actually reinforces like you said misogyny and also how it emulates a lot of patterns of the culture that they were living in and you 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 mentioned like emulating ancient near east uh, mythology and how you know, they had a custom of portraying women as cities and just kind of, yeah. once again, it, it reemphasizes this idea that one, you know, not only did the, did the Bible not exist in a vacuum, but also yep. when it, when these things were written and, and came about and canonized, it wasn't as subversive as we like to look back and, right. and cast it to be, because instead it was just sort of reinforcing a lot of these systems of oppression from the culture that it stemmed from. And yes, um, that is a really awesome point. And in Battered Love, um, I love that um, Weems makes a point of talking about who, who the prophets were talking to when they were t- talking about God's like a relationship um, with Israel and like um, how how people should like live and like write and function. Um, She points out that the prophets were largely men talking to groups of powerful men, Mm -hmm. right? And so they chose language that would appeal to a man in power, 
right? And so I think that that that's something that we overlook when we talk about the Bible, right? There are so many instances of power hierarchies being enforced because it was men talking to men about how men and women should uh, live. Men talking to powerful men. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I, I guess, yep. unfortunately. Um, and that leads me into the, there's a, a point that you make in the paper that I, that I really do want to get to where, where there's this quote that says, sometimes the text is itself horrifying. And yeah. that doesn't go away with anyone's culturally cued hermeneutic. And in the progressive church, there there is there's been some wonderful, valent attempts to recapture, to reconcile, and recontextualize certain texts. And a lot of times, you know, it 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 can be educational, it can be helpful, but they are there also is still, even in the progressive church, a tendency to let's overlook. Let's not talk about the fact that even in, in the text, there is some inherently bad and hurtful passages, books, canons, basically. In your opinion, is this something that the, the church really needs to accept and reconcile with before progress can be made about how we start treating other people? Yeah, I mean, there is this, I feel like there is this big desire we want so badly to for the Bible to be this infallible, perfect thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not, <laughs> right? And so I think that this is a truth that the church has to accept before progress can be made. Because if we're not telling the truth about the Bible as, as an anthology, written over a period of of a, like a like long 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 time <laughs> then like then what are we doing mm-hmm. right to like to ignore the like difficult terrifying parts of the bible and the implications of those parts takes away from the overall value of um the book and its teachings like when we ignore the truth about the bible we make room for religious and doctrination and um for idol worship mm-hmm. right um i like i say this all the time a lot of uh, American Christianity is just idol worship. It is people painting God and Christ to be this thing and then trying to prove that they are loyal to that thing mm-hmm. that they came up with, right? And so we can't get to know an affirming, loving, good God and Christ cannot become the lens through which we see the world if if we're too busy worshiping a golden statue of what we want Christ to be right I truly do believe that the truth will 
make us free. And that includes the truth about the horrific nature of the entire Bible. So um, you think about um, the civil rights era where the um, black church was on the like front lines and and then even now like think about so many black churches being involved in like social justice work right we see that but where it stops is is when we start talking uh, about sexuality Mm -hmm. It is hard to find a church that doesn't participate. Um, well, it, it is hard to find a black church that um, doesn't participate in misogyny mm-hmm. and homophobia. So it seems like the uh, black church is like all about justice, except for when it comes to that mm-hmm. and I think that what is missing when we talk about that is the fact that that is evidence of how like how white supremacy has influenced what the um black church is and um a lot of Kelly Brown Puglis's work tackles that right there has always been this idea of blackness being inherently tied to sexual deviance, right? And so the um, result of that is that black people have tried so hard to push back uh, against that, that we've adopted homophobic language and like we've adopted transphobic language and um you know woman hating right Mm -hmm. and right and like so I think that that speaks to the larger point of how white supremacy has played a part in the shaping of the uh black church and uh, um And we don't talk enough about how the Black church does the work of white supremacy by, I guess, pushing homophobic and transphobic um, politics. It's it's that idea of of sort of the the victims of, of a system can further that system or or, or perpetuate that system, I suppose. And and. So I'm curious, I mean, if you also see that tying into this idea that you brought up of, of sort of um, the thought of like, well, I'm a Christian first and I'm black second um, is sort of another way of like erasure of, of black identity. Um, if that also kind of comes from this per, uh, perpetuation of it, just sort of like to to further adhere to an idea of identity that has been handed down, even yeah. though that idea of I'm a Christian first and, and black second is, is sort of the theological equivalent of like, well, I don't see color. That is so like true. Um, um, the whole I'm Christian before I am black thing only 
goes to affirm this idea that whiteness is the only true way of being, right? And it is completely antithetical to um, the gospel and like that it strips Black people of our identities, right? And I think that this goes back to, of course, the like slave era, like for enslaved Africans, American Christianity became the thing they, they clung to for hope, right? It was the thing that helped them through um, both emotionally and spiritually, right? But we can't ignore that Christianity was also the vehicle used to erase and replace a like a lot of like um, African religions and spiritual practices, right? And so as much as it was this life-giving thing, Christianity was also made a part of, of like white supremacist apparatus to make enslaved Africans more um, quote unquote civilized or or white and um, force them into a new way of, of like life. And so we can acknowledge Christianity in those two senses, right? Like people talk as if two things can't be true at the same time, but it can, right? Even with, you know, the, the context of who wrote the scriptures, who canonized them, who contextualized them, there's something hopeful about this idea that despite all of that, as, as you say, the, the work of Weems, Douglas, and Gaffney, you know, alludes to their belief that social justice is part of the gospel of Christ. And that's awesome and hopeful. And yet it, it was this weird question that occurred to me is like, if, if really a lot of this stuff was assembled to support a patriarchy to support or or ultimately it went to support white supremacy why even include this stuff about christ how does that support them or is it just that there's something inherently truthful with a capital t about who christ is and what christ does it actually kind of seems in a weird way contradictory like if we want to support power you don't include stories about this guy that's like i'm breaking all of this stuff down right yeah, so um, I will say that although, well, I am very critical of the church, right, of course, but the gospel is the truest thing I know, mm. right? Um, and um, with all that being said, nothing is in fallible. Mm-hmm. Nothing is immune to being politicized and weaponized, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I won't say that the that that Christ and 
the gospel are, um, you know, resistant to white washing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so um, when asking what patriarchy and white supremacy could could gain, I look at the circumstances of Christ's life, his mother, the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. her life and her story opens up a whole debate about consent and mm-hmm. and about sex as a um, defiling thing, right? Mm. And um, we see some of the miracles that Christ performed being used as a vehicle um, for ableism, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we have this biblical figure in Christ who represented liberation, who represented abolition, and who was countercultural, the fact that we have all that and and can still find ways to use his life to prop up contemporary power hierarchies speaks to the power of patriarchy and white supremacy. I even saw it every Sunday in my church growing up. There was not one but two stained glass windows on each side of the church depicting a long-haired white Jesus, which just... You do it even just a little bit of digging doesn't make any sense. And we know that he was not white. He wasn't <laughs> a white man. <laughs> it's, it, it's, listen, just a simple Google search and you see like, nope, that's not biologically possible. Okay. And then start thinking like, but wait, maybe where does that come from? And, and even, you know, even a, a quote that you include from Weems, um, make no mistake about it. Evangelicalism is white, dis- uh, white supremacy disguised as religion. Um, so I guess... But I always like to, you know, end these sort of things on hopeful and inspirational notes because, God, this paper was, it was wonderful. It was so edifying and so illuminating for me. So I guess if someone were to read this or even the works of Weems or, or Gaffney or Douglas, just what, what do you hope they get out of it? And, and so what, what sort of hope do you have for the future of the church and for these, these stories and these voices being heard? That is a really good uh, question. Um, So decolonizing your faith as a Christian is a very hard thing. Mm -hmm. And it requires a lot of tearing down of like what you've been taught and like what you always knew about Christ and like God and the like Bible to like be like true, right? And that's a very hard thing and it's very heartbreaking, right? But the beauty in that is that by decolonizing and um, tearing down all of like that junk, you open up yourself and your heart to... um, meet Christ and God again 
in a new way, a way, a way that is affirming, a, a way that is hopeful, a way that brings comfort, right? So it is like a whole new journey, right? And so I think that that is what Kelly Brown, Douglas and Weems and Will Gaffney have in like common. The underlying theme is like hope, right? It is hope that there is a, a whole other way of being in like Christ. <laughs>